So hi, welcome to Architects in the Den. And today I'm delighted to welcome Ben Derbyshire. So um, would you like to introduce yourself? Ah, uh, well, um, I'm the immediate past president of the uh, RIBA, uh, which I joined as a council member in 2014 uh, and became its president in 2017. Um, I'm no longer anything to do with the RIBA at all. I came off council um, in August um, this year. Uh, I'm the chair of a practice called HTA Design, LLP, um, which has four offices, London, uh, Manchester, Bristol and Edinburgh. Um, about 230 members of our practice, which is interdisciplinary, not just architecture. And I'm lately um, and very much enjoying being a commissioner of the uh, Historic England, mm -hmm. um, which is a, um, a super role, which I'm just about getting into. <laughs> so we, we met on the, um, when I was serving on the, on the council and you were in, um, you, you were in post as, as president um so uh, I, I when did I leave the council I think I left the council in 2018 I served a three-year term so how long was your term in total well we met then but then we did stuff uh so I remember you coming to our studio in London and yes. giving in an extremely um frank uh rather uh, tellingly illustrated and emotional um presentation uh about your work and your uh, background which i seem to remember started with a, a slide of your firstborn um <laughs> uh, immediately uh, after um the birth so that was a dramatic, <laughs> a dramatic introduction to your family Anyway, yeah, uh, certainly, certainly, um, uh, something I'll never forget. And uh, I, yeah, I, I, think it, I, I think it was in weight that uh, I think she was in uh, in weighing scales, <laughs> screaming. <laughs> and then we've met variously in Manchester, haven't we? At uh, Manchester events, um, which yeah. I always enjoy very much. Yeah, and, the Manchester, Manchester Society of Architects. Yeah. We always. Um, put on a good uh, a good formal a good ball and the and awards evenings and things like that yeah, really good the best i think <laughs> uh, well while i was president i i tried to do as much as i could to um, enhance the um, local presence and um, provide resources for local riba chapters because my thing was that uh, the best way to promote the profession was by celebrating the work of architects wherever and however they practice and that that's best done locally so um i think the manchester society was was definitely amongst the most active um uh, and rich um of the uh, of the local chapters yes yeah so today we're going to be talking about uh resilience in architectural practice um so how long have you been in practice for <laughs> That's not a bit of a telling question. Well, I joined the practice that I'm now chair of as a part one student. 
Wow. In uh, 1973. Wow. So that, so that when I retire as an equity partner, which I plan to do um, in 2023, I will have been in the same practice for 50 years. Caught that. Why? I did, have you ever worked? Why? Why? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, because it's not the same practice um, yeah. at all. I mean, there were five of us then. Um, I was the fifth member of the practice. It had been formed in 1969. Yeah. Um, and it's been through all manner of changes um, and grown and shrunk and grown and shrunk. Um, so um, I gather you're interested to talk about um, resilience in yeah. practice and um, the perspective of somebody who's been in practice with the involving group of people um, over so many years is probably quite a good perspective to discuss resilience. Mm, mm. So, I mean, I would say in your 50 years, what's been your biggest challenge? Um, gosh, uh, I'm, I'm never good, never any good at biggest, best, favorite things, mm. um, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, the, well, the challenge of the profession is something that drew me to become a member of the RIBA's council. And um, uh, I think, you know, what I regard as the challenge for the profession is really, you know, the challenge for practice. Um, and there's sort of quite a lot to it, really. Um, the biggest, I think, um, is the value challenge, as I call it, because it, it affects so many other things. That is to say, the degree to which uh, our contribution is valued by society and our clients mm. um, and the alternatives that are now becoming available mm. um, to society and our clients um, when they don't understand or realize or when actually architects don't measure up adequately to provide them with something that they value. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think making a good living is uh, an immense challenge. Uh, and sharing it appropriately, that's um, a big challenge. But of course, it affects other things. And one of the things it affects is diversity because um, it's an expensive business becoming a, uh, uh, an architect with £100,000 of student debt. And uh, the equation seen from the point of view of um, people who are disadvantaged either economically or because they're a member of a uh, minority that's discriminated against, um, when you add the disadvantage that actually, um, you know, it, it's, in the early years, it's, it's these days quite possibly not a self-sustaining um, economic proposition being a young architect in towns like Manchester and, and London where um, accommodation costs are incredibly expensive. So um, I, I think that the, the value challenge um, contributes um, a lot to the lack of diversity in the profession. Mm -hmm. I mean, what that's one thing that we, because our business model is just talking to homeowners, we've got to um, sort of show our value pretty early on in the conversation. Um, and and we, we do charge more than kind of what might be our competition so 
you know, if we see our competition as draftsmen or architectural technicians or, um, you know, builders or structural engineers, um, you know, we'd, we'd charge more. And so from the outset, we, we show our, our value by, by doing sort of hand-drawn sketch sort of concept drawings of, of clients' houses. And we do this in front of them. So this is in our concept design workshop. So once we've drawn up the existing property, um, we then draw out options at one to 50. First thing that we do is kind of demonstrate what, um, draw out what our clients are thinking. Cause often, you know, until you've drawn out what a client's got in their head, they'll never be able to move on to looking at alternatives. So we have to draw that out first. And then once we've drawn that, um, we can then show loads of options. And then we bring in scale. I've got little, and this is <laughs> kind of adapted to working online and on Zoom. I've got little uh, kind of one to 50 scale models of people that we can uh, just throw on the plans just to help animate animate them so we're not we're not doing like 3ds or cgis or anything like that what we are doing is is showing us our, our skills our architectural skills by by drawing and physically problem solving and then talking through what the issues are you know what what things mean why you can't do certain things and our clients really seem to um value that and then we charge for our workshops so we charge 300 pounds for a two-hour concept design workshop um and the client pays um before well, we the um, you definitely don't want to be the cheapest exactly um, they talk about the race to the bottom and mm -hmm. uh you know the ideal situation is to um win work in competition and of course we're all in competition but definitely not at the lowest cost uh, and so you do therefore have to figure out how you're going to uh, add value in such a way as to make the purchasing choice um, not the cheapest and uh, so that's really what you're exemplifying with your technique there and I think uh, that's something that we in my practice have worked on since the uh, very beginning, uh, yeah. we uh, we regard um, innovation and in practice um, of the kind that you're talking about, but obviously rather different scales of project. But we regard innovations and practices completely fundamental, and uh, um, we we like to think well. We actually do spend quite a lot of money on research and development, mm. um, and uh, as as a practice, and in figuring out new ways, in particular. Um, pursue your line of thinking, in particular new ways of relating uh, in a person-to-person -person way um, with, in our case, groups of consumers of the built environment, communities and so on, um, who, as you say, have uh, usually got a, um, a, a preconception about what it is that's going to happen. And the first thing to do is to uh, open out the scope of possibilities so that they can see can happen that they may not have previously considered. Mm, mm. Yeah. So going back to the main point, <laughs> the, the main um, topic of conversation about business resilience, 
Um, can you think of an example of um, sort of any main, major change that's happened within the practice? Maybe not sort of that recently, but over the last sort of five years and how you've dealt with it and what advice you would give to dealing with challenges? Well, um, it's not so much about change. It's in fact, I think about consistency. Mm. And in the DNA of the way we practice is um, very much a, a personal, a human element to both relationships and our work uh, with people who we work for and with, um, but people in our studios. Um, so uh, we have a strap line, relatively recent, but actually it's actually just a, a, a formulation which describes how we've thought about our practice over all these years. Um, and that is that we, our purpose is to create great places, but also to create a great place to work. Mm. And it's incredibly important to us that um, everybody enjoys uh, the environment in which we are all working together um, and that it suits uh, as wide a possible diversity of different people from different backgrounds. And we work really quite hard on that. It's especially hard uh, during um, the pandemic, I have to say. Yeah. Because, of course, um, well, for a while, all of us, all 230 members of our team were, you know, working from home. Um, we, we got back to a really reasonable proportion working in the practice, but now um, uh, during the second wave, um, that's slightly diminished. Um, but that's just the current um, problem. I, I think the, the, the really important thing that I can say that we've applied consistently through the years of practice and the four recessions that we've um, so far survived um, is, is that we see it as very much a matter of working with the people, um, supporting each other and, and creating a, um, a collaborative and mutually supportive environment. Mm. I think that's one sort of good thing about being a part of um, a franchise is that, you know, even though, you know, as individuals, we're spearheading our own practices, um, we've got the support of the franchise to help each other and we can, we learn best practice from each other and um, just provide kind of moral support when you're going through um, strange times and also just how to deal with um kind of the next the changes i think think ch the world just seems to be changing at the moment i presume one of the things that you're able to do um in your franchise structure is provide your members with um a sort of dashboard um a basic kit for um uh, assessing the performance of their practice um is that right Yes, yes, we look at, um, well, it, it, we touch on everything. Um, but yes, we've, we, we've got a business consultant that we work with and we constantly mo monitor the business plan and the cash flow forecast. And so we can kind of, uh, and, and 
the most important thing to to us is numbers um it's kind of um uh, and our conversion rates how many inquiries are we getting through how many um prospects or um sort of briefing um meetings are we having and then how many workshops and then from the workshops how many of those workshops are actually converting into projects yeah. so once we've done the concept design workshop um a project will either uh move into a proper sort of project job or won't you know they might then um you know we believe in um sort of once clients have got their workshops they can do a feasibility off it and work out you know how much is does it cost how much is it uh what value is it going to add and are any of the are there any showstoppers from neighbors and what have you and at that point they'll work out the viability you know is it worth extending is it worth converting a loft or or whatever they want to do or not or are they going to move um, and then at that point, um, projects uh, move on. So funnily enough, in, during the um, pandemic, our, my conversion rates have, um, have really improved. I used to convert from like every one, every four workshops, I'd convert one project, so one in four. Um, but during the pandemic, it's almost like one in two, which is crazy. Well, that's brilliant. So. I mean, I, I definitely think having um, a, an effective and business-like approach, mm. uh, which includes you know, all of the measures that you've been describing, um, the expected value of the work that you've got coming in, um, mm. your costs um, of sales um, in delivering it, mm. um, and uh, the anticipated net profit, all of those things um, are absolutely crucial to um, sustainability of business and um, if we have a recession um, then it's looking forward to um, the circumstances in the future that will prepare everybody for uh, coping with it. Mm. Um, I'm not so particularly surprised actually uh, to hear of your because I, th I think that you know there's been a, a, a refocusing hasn't there um, people and households um, locked down and um, surrounded by uh, the irritations of their current um, circumstances um, <laughs> are in the ideal set of circumstances mm. to, um, uh, to set about wishing to, uh, to make changes. So um, uh, it's, it's an ill wind, mm. uh, but it's no good. And uh, I think um, uh, that's something that's clearly benefited you. So mm. Yes, and, and people have, well, unfortunately, people have had to cancel holidays and postpone yeah. weddings and things like that. So they're kind of doing doing this instead and, and buying puppies. <laughs> <laughs> Not we, in my case. Which we've just done. <laughs> okay. uh, I, I, lots of people seem to be doing that. Yeah, never mind children. Puppies is just, uh, puppies just turn my life upside down. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, well, I, no, uh, no danger of that in my case. I'm seriously allergic to dogs and cats, so uh, right. <laughs> uh, that's that's not a feature of my life that's going to. Yeah, yeah. So we were talking before about being consistent. 
So, or you were talking about being consistent. What What are the dangers of not being consistent? Well, I just think you, you, it's incredibly important to have a plan, not just an annual business plan, but um, you know, a life plan, a long plan for mm. what you want to do professionally and how you think it's going to uh, benefit um, your clients and wider society and to um, be motivated by it. So, uh, you know, to, to do that in the world of architecture, you, you, you know, you can't really afford to chop and change. Projects take quite a long time in gestation. Mm. Um, your business, you know, will grow, but generally speaking, you grow quite slowly. Mm. So to be consistent and improving consistently seems to me to be um, fundamental. Mm. To be constantly chopping and changing um, mm. is to confuse your marketplace, I would have thought, mm. um, to make it difficult for people working with you to understand where you're going. And uh, so I, I, I'm a great believer in, in, in uh, making a plan and, and sticking to it, mm. um, you know, albeit that it needs to be sufficiently flexible to accommodate um, exigencies of mm. Pestilence, and as we now discover, and um, other challenges to life. Mm. But yeah, consistency, I think, is is really Constant. important. And of course, you've been at Pride Road now for uh, what six, seven years. Um, <laughs> feels like it. No, <laughs> four years. Four years. Four years. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it is. It's it's having an idea and then kind of being persistent with it. Sticking at it. Absolutely. Sticking yeah. at it. Yes. You know, kind of when we established the brand. Um, yeah, we've not changed it. We launched with the Pride Road and and, and that's it. Um, and it just, you know, we'd done enough research before we launched that we knew that it, it would sit well with with clients and with architects. And, and with uh, franchisees. So tell me, one of the um, things that I think is Im important for resilience is a sense of partnership and mm. the sharing of uh, problems uh, and equally the sharing of um, the benefits of your work. Mm -hmm. So uh, the, the, the final change in the structure of um, our practice was back to a partnership in which the ethos is that uh, anyone's problem is a problem for all of us mm. and that it's for all of us to help each other resolve each other's problems uh, and that has we previously we were a limited company where you know, there were various divisions and so on and so forth. And that phenomenon of mutual self-help um, was much less evident. Um, but I'm wondering whether you franchise partners or franchise members uh, have been able to develop that, that same uh, sense of collective endeavour. Yeah, well, we have um, sort of monthly sort of franchise development days where we kind of discuss you know it's it, it's a touch point and we use it for cpd um and kind of talk around business issues or marketing or have webinars on kind of like latest updates but then we're also having weekly 
Zoom meetings as well. And, you know, I think it's it's been so important just to share, you know, if anyone's learned anything, because um, we all follow the same process. Um, uh, and, you know, if anyone's got any sort of suggestions how to improve it, um, uh, you know, we'll try it. And if it works, then, you know, we'll, we'll instate it across the board. So it is, it's that shared, um, shared knowledge. And so have you, um, have you presented all of this at the, I think, rather wonderful RIBA Guerrilla Tactics event? Yeah, I spoke at Guerrilla Tactics about three years ago when Maria Smith was coordinating it. Right. It was on um, a kind of, uh, people see it as an unusual business model. <laughs> Well, it is an unusual business model, but I mean, I think, you know, we're talking about resilience and I think, I think Jane Duncan um, invented guerrilla tactics. Mm. I think I'm right about that. But anyway, it does strike me that it's a, it's a brilliantly um, open source way for mm. the profession to share ideas that, um, you know, will enable its um, diversity and its survival. So uh, mm. um, I, I think it was a very, a very good innovation of Jane's, and I, I gather it's one of the most successful and popular events of the Institute. Mm, mm. I think yeah. there, are, there, there were moves to make it regional. I don't know whether that's happened. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Set one up in Manchester. Just do it. <laughs> Just, <laughs> Just do it. Okay. Well, I ran the uh, Manchester Curious. It was a while ago that now, and that back in 2015, it was like our, our version of uh, London Open House. Um, and sort of got about 36 venues on board over a weekend. Brilliant. Yeah, it was great, um, but very hard work. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> Writing down guerrilla tactics, launch in Manchester. <laughs> Note to self. <laughs> Note to self. I, I don't write things down, they'll just become goals. <laughs> so I think we need to start um, wrapping up. What, um, what advice would you give to your younger self? Do you mean things that I might have done differently? Mm. Be more confident. Okay. That's really interesting. When did you learn confidence? Well, I don't, I don't really have much of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, people are usually surprised when I say that, but it's true. Um, and um, uh, in, in, in place of confidence, I've, I've learned that one just has to uh, um, sort of bear the pain, um, take the risk and have a go. Uh, because natural self-confidence is such a wonderful asset. Mm. Um, I mean, as long as it goes along with, you know, empathy and uh, the ability to listen. I mean, uh, overconfidence that makes people overbearing and uh, not able to collaborate is um, not helpful. But yeah. a bit more confidence would have, would have been great if, uh, if uh, Ron Derbyshire. Yeah. Was there a moment when... Or what was the moment when you felt found? No, that's it. Um, I can be confident in myself because I have. Well, it hasn't happened. Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. 
I don't I don't feel as if I've earned my spurs ever, um, mm. to be honest with you. Uh, I think I think um, I'm slightly um, less crippled by self-consciousness and uh, lack of um, social competence than I used to be, um, simply through um, practice, I think. Mm. But I um, and, and I suppose it's also true that, you know, as, as one has such as one has achieved anything, those achievements kind of build up as a, a sort of carapace against um, uh, the terror. But uh, um, no, I, I think I, I, that just came to mind instantaneously, by the way. I hadn't prepared that answer, but I, yeah. I think it's true. I, I think um, yeah, more confidence would have helped me along. Yeah. And you? Oh, what advice would I give to my younger self? Don't do architecture. No. <laughs> no. Um, I don't know. I'm not expecting you to turn the question on me. <laughs> Two-way street. Um, I, I guess, um, you know, I kind of ended up setting up on my own out of necessity. Um, you know, I'd been in practice for 10 years and, you know, got short shrift, really, because, you know, trying to juggle, um, you know, kids, family life with, with career was a challenge. I mean, so working in practice, you know, was great experience. Um, should I have set up earlier? Don't know. I was talking to Simone de Gaulle. Um, she was our last guest um, on the uh, on the podcast, and sh she's phenomenal. She she set up uh, in practice, I think, just before she qualified, which was just astounding. I mean, that that's someone who you know you've got a goal and you go for it, yeah. and they you know kind of just that 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 blew me away really well uh, the the founding partners of uh, uh hta mm. um set up while they were still doing their um part two mm. it, um, it it's kind of what what makes you take those risks mm. um yeah if, for you it might have been you know um opening a new office well, I think taking risks, I mean, or one, of the, one of the things the profession needs to get better at, in my view, is understanding risk and managing it. Mm -hmm. And I think that is, you know, not just on behalf of our clients, but it's on, on in our own uh, conditions of, of working. And mm -hmm. we've become a very, very risk-averse profession. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, when we look back at, at some of the pioneering members of the, of, of, of the profession, you know, people who set up their own housing associations in order to be able to, um, uh, to do uh, interesting work. Um, mm. People have become um, architects who've become developers. Um, you know, I think we need to diversify as a profession a lot. And that means having the business skills to um, understand risk and, and to manage it away. Mm, mm. Well, that, that seems like a, a good note to end the conversation. So um, 
I just want to thank you for joining um, joining the podcast, uh, Ben Derbyshire. And um, just I'm just thinking of uh, people who I should be interviewing next. Have you got any suggestions? Oh, um, my problem is I don't know you've, you've interviewed already, but have you done Sadie Morgan? No. She's not actually a qualified architect, much to my uh, irritation, mm -hmm. um, but she's a, a real uh, champion for um, quality and, uh, and the town. Okay, I will try and contact her. So thank you very much, Ben. And um, hopefully at some point, I'll see you in the future at the RIBA, maybe? I do hope so. It'll apparently is reopening after Christmas. Um, Who is uh, it? I'm looking forward to getting back there. Okay, brilliant. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Bye.